All right, I'm going to bring the Latina sass to the table. And then I'm also going to be vulnerable and going to bring the softer side out of me. And then I'm just going to be bossy when things need to get done. Hello, welcome to Statement Mondays, where we explore how different women harness their identities at work. I'm your host, Natalie Munster. And if you need a reason to be bold today, here it is. Today is Statement Monday. I'm really excited for today's episode. We're talking with Carla Magaña Figueroa. As a formerly undocumented immigrant, Carla grew up in a society where people like her aren't given many opportunities. Despite many challenges, she's now pursuing two graduate degrees at the same time to build her skill set in business and policy and move into the public sector. Join us as she discusses her pride in her roots, the challenges of being a person of color and female in finance, and what grad school means to her. And stick around after the interview to debrief it with me. Welcome, Carla Magana Figueroa. Could you please introduce yourself? Absolutely. And Natalie, you know, thank you so much for, for having me on. So a little bit about me. Uh, I am a first-generation Mexican-American. My mom moved to the United States when I was seven uh, to pick grapes so that I could eventually join her in the United States. And my life has, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of different places. I went to an inner-city public school uh, was in the the gifted magnet program, so to speak. Always loved school, and got a private fellowship to attend college, even though I was undocumented. This is all before Obama's DACA initiative. So always felt super lucky to have been able to pursue my education, even though I, I didn't have access to to federal financial aid. And then spent five years in New York working in financial services consulting. Was a lot of fun, lots of clients, very dynamic, but ultimately realized that I really wanted to go to graduate school as a way Mm -hmm. to polish both my business and policy acumen. So right now, I am currently a dual degree at the University of Chicago Booth and the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm getting a joint degree, getting an MBA and an MPP as a way to bridge my interests in business and in policy. So it's been one heck of a ride, three amazing <laughs> years, and just feel so fortunate to to be here. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. I like to jump in deep right away. What would you say is your public and your professional identity? And I know you've held a few internships and you also have done quite a bit of school, so it can be in any of those capacities or all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think um, in terms of, I'll start with my public identity. I would say that I try to be an advocate for people who are from my background. So, you know, the undocumented community in the United States is not very well represented in the highest echelons of government and business. And, you know, for me, it's it's been such an an amazing opportunity to be at places like you, Chicago and Harvard, um, and get to bring that perspective because it's not often represented. So for me, you know, my public identity really centers around 
my Latinidad, being a Mexican American, being a first generation college student, and using those things as a source of of pride and as a as a rich and diverse lived experience that I can contribute to conversations. I think in terms of the professional identity, you know, I think a lot of those things really carry over, but the way that I grew up really helped to build the foundation for my professional identity. So, you know, being Mexican-American, being like a first-generation immigrant taught me the the value of like hard work, right? Which I, mm. I try to apply now. Uh, being, you know, a woman of color has taught me the value of diverse lived experiences. So anytime I'm, I'm on a team where I, the rest of the room doesn't look like me, I try to remember that I'm there for a reason. So in a lot of ways, my public identity um, has really helped to, to be the foundation for what I bring to the table professionally. So your background and how you grew up really has an impact on who you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that as a country, like collectively, we have woken up and we've said there are things that are too important not to speak out about. So, for example, Mm. in tech, you see this in support for um, like more generous immigration policies when it comes Mm -hmm. to letting people work in the United States or just this summer, like the racial awakening that we saw across the board with the Black Lives Matter movement, putting Black stories and the Black experience at the center of of our collective national conscious was just really, really powerful to kind of see us redefine what, you know, what is acceptable to talk about at the nexus of the public and the professional spheres. Mm. And you've done a lot of work with economic development and educational advancement yourself. Uh, So it sounds like you really take your identity as Latina and put it towards having more representation or trying to empower other people who may be in similar positions that you would have been growing up. Yeah, I, you know, I can look back at my experience and I acknowledge that I worked really hard, but I also acknowledge that I also got really lucky. Mm. And I think oftentimes that luck came in the form of amazing mentors who literally had nothing to gain by helping me out, were just donating their time, energy, resources to me. Mm-hmm. So now I'm in this position where it's like, I have a platform, I have resources, I have an incredible community. How can I pay it forward so mm. that things are easier or better for the next wave of of students? And I'll give you a, a recent example. So I'm at the I'm at the Kennedy School right now, and what we found was that the number of Latinx students in the class had not changed in the last 15 years. Mm. So every year, somehow, the the same number of students were getting admitted. But the number of students who were applying had actually doubled in that time. So there was this huge delta between, you know, the number of students who were applying, which were more and more and more and more, and the number of students who were getting admitted, which was just completely staying flat. 
Mm -hmm. So I worked very closely with the admissions office to ensure that our admissions um, committee process was getting debiased to ensure that we were setting people up with the right kind of essay review resources to ensure that when students got admitted, that they had a touch point with other Latinx students. And thankfully, all these efforts paid off. And this year, we saw a 72% increase in the number of admitted Latinx students. Wow. So I think for me that... Yeah, no, I mean, it was considerable, statistically significant, as my stats stats professor would say, but just such an amazing reminder that like all change is local, all change starts with you, with individuals. Um, And I really try to keep that in mind with my economic empowerment and educational opportunity work. Wait, so how did you, tell me, how did you get into that? How did you first start working with admissions in this way? Like, can you just knock on their door and say, hey, I see a problem. You need to fix this and I can help. Pretty much. (laughs) And I will say, at first, I don't know that it was, I don't know that my, uh, that I was, you know, welcome. They were like, who, excuse me, what? Um, But I was, I I was able to use my quote unquote formal authority as one of the Mm -hmm. co-chairs of the Latinx caucus at the Kennedy School, which is kind of the, the formal group for all Latino and Latinx identifying students. And then from there, they had to, to sit down with me and give me a meeting. Um, Mm. But basically, you know, I approached it kind of like a partnership. Like we have as much of a vested interest as you do to ensure that classes keep diversifying. How do we work together to make that happen? Yeah, got it. Um, So I, before you told me that you have a really close family and you do have such a fascinating story of, Uh, coming from a family of undocumented immigrants. And Mm -hmm. I would love to hear how your family life has helped develop who you are as a person. Because I know you're very proud of your Latina heritage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to know where all that comes from and how you became the Carla you are right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I will say, thankfully today, my nuclear family, so my mom, my dad, my two sisters were all American citizens. It took years for that to happen. Um, But, you know, I know that like we're very blessed in that regard. With that being said, within my extended family, I have a bunch of family members who are still undocumented. And I'm not going to lie with you, Natalie, to me in the the public conversation, I feel like people have this idea of like who quote unquote undocumented immigrants are, and those are not the best portrayals. Mm. And then I just look at, at my undocumented family members who sure may have entered the country without documentation or overstayed a visa or something like that, but are just like working their butts off to, you know, to provide for their families, to be good members of society who pay taxes, by the way, even though they Mm. get zero social benefits and who, you know, are just like trying to, trying to live the American dream. So for me, it's actually, I feel like I, there's just this huge delta between what some of the public conceptions are and then like 
seeing my family members and and the hard work that they put in to be part of this country. So, you know, I think for me, it's it's really about dignity. It's really about remembering my roots and ensuring that I never forget where I came from. Mm. And it's also about ensuring that like people meet, you know, people like me, right? Again, I think people have all these preconceptions about who undocumented folks are or what their stories are, but it's been really rewarding to get to share stories like mine and change some hearts and minds along the way. Yeah. Wow. Um, (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) I I love hearing about how dignity plays such a role in how you present yourself. Yeah. There's so much there. Um, Is a lot of the work that you are doing to very actively debunk Mm -hmm. these preconceptions of who undocumented immigrants are? Or are you just debunking it in who you are as a person and just impressing people and then having them see where you came from and who you are now? Or Mm -hmm. is it more of a very active mission of yours? I think it's both. And I, you know, it's so fascinating. I'm taking a leadership class and we're looking at we're kind of trying to analyze the different identities that each of us hold and kind of how they motivate what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I think for me, it's like, I'm incredibly proud of who I am. I know that I am, I am not the norm because of lack of access to resources. I know that talent is evenly distributed in this world, but opportunity is not. And again, I've just gotten very, very lucky. So for me, it's kind of this thing where it's like, I, um, yeah, I try to show up and like represent for my people and I try to give back and pay it forward. But I also know that I'm not perfect (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that, that like load isn't a fair one and may not be one that I should carry. So it's actually a question that I'm actively addressing in a leadership class is like, what responsibility do I have? How will that responsibility shape my future work? Mm -hmm. And how can I balance all these interests and commitments in my life? in a way where I am giving back to my community, making people proud, but also in a way where I am not burning myself out and ensuring that I stay energized. So it's a work in progress. (laughs) Have you come up with any discoveries since the start of this class? Have you figured anything out? Uh, I would say... Yeah, I think for me, one of the big revelations has been that these identities are extremely motivating and I should be extremely proud of who I am. But if they kind of overshadow like every other identity that I have, everything else that I have going on, I can kind of get burnt out and I can, it can just feel overwhelming. Mm. So I need to find a way to balance my Latinidad being a Mexican American with all the other 
parts of my identity in a way that like where things bring me joy. And that's what I'm really trying to get at. It's like, what is that? What does that healthy mix look like? Mm-hmm. And what other, what are the other parts of your identity that you're trying to balance with your Latinidad and your yeah. Mexican heritage? Yeah, I would say, you know, being a woman in finance is a big one. Um, I would say being an advocate for social justice is really important to me wherever I go. Being a sister, mm. <laughs> being a daughter, having a partner, um, being like an athlete. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, We were talking about my commitment to my running and my strength training. Uh, Yeah, there's (laughs) just, there's so much richness in my life that I have and that, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to balance. Well, I love to see you identifying uh, and acknowledging these other identities that you have, these other strengths, these other interests, and knowing that you don't want to just isolate and grow one, that it is important to have a balance. And as I told you, I'm personally of the belief that you can only be better the more pieces of yourself that you bring to the surface and that you Mm -hmm. give energy to. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important to like, you know, just do lots of different things that, that do bring you that balance and that joy. Okay. Let's pause here. Carla is clearly a very ambitious woman, and I really love to see where that all comes from, how her background and her Latinidad give her strength and drive every day. And in this next part, she talks about what culture means in a company and what she thinks needs to change in the finance world. And if you're thinking about doing graduate school, she shares why she did it, so that could be relevant for you. At the end, I'll ask Carla the same question I ask all my guests, which is, what are your heels? And high heels, here is what I'm using as a placeholder that means what is your one trait that gives you strength and brings out the best in you? Hint, it's not something she's talked about yet. So let's jump back in. How do you bring yourself to work? Actually, let me rephrase that. Do you bring your whole self to work? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious in the context of both school and education, Mm -hmm. as well as the internships that you've held, because finance is notorious for Mm -hmm. not having very many women, not having very many Latinas. And so I would love to know what pieces of you do come through Mm -hmm. in both spheres. Yeah, I love this question. I think if you had asked me this question a few years ago, in terms of bringing my whole self to work in, in the professional realm, I would have said absolutely not. And I think graduate school has been such an amazing opportunity to reflect on the incredible position of privilege that I'm in for someone from my background. And again, that responsibility and that freedom that comes with speaking my truth. So I would say that more and more, I just kind of view it as like, there is nothing that's more important to me than to speaking my truth and being who I am. And the Kennedy School especially has been such an amazing place to experiment with what that actually looks like. Mm. (laughs) Where it's like, all right, I'm going to bring the Latina sass to the table. (laughs) And then I'm also going to be vulnerable and 
going to bring the softer side out of me. And then I'm just going to be bossy when things need to get done. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that like, it's really okay. Like, (laughs) um, as long as I'm being respectful and thoughtful and kind, Mm -hmm. there's very little to lose. Mm. And I think for me, in terms of the professional side of things, I think it is harder to bring my full self there, but I think I'm doing it more and more because again, Mm -hmm. having that freedom to be who I am and not shrinking myself to fit a mold or a box is just so much more important to me. And if I'm in an organization that celebrates that, great. And if I'm not, life goes on and there will be other places that celebrate my shine. Mm. So graduate school, it's really funny. I love this question has actually been an incredibly transformative time for me to bring more of my authentic self to everything I do, even if I'm the only person of color or I'm the only woman in the room. Because again, that freedom to be is so important to me. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has that courage or privilege to be able or privilege, but also courage. I mean, even people in extreme positions of privilege don't take that opportunity. And it sounds like you found a great place, almost like a sandbox where you can play around and test things out. So what blockers in the finance world do you face that don't let you bring your whole self to work? I mean, it's just like, I, I think it's just one, it's a function of just being different, right? And like different isn't bad, but it's like, you just like, I just stick out like a sore thumb, right? I'm a woman of color in a sea of mostly white men. So I just, Mm -hmm. I stand out. So it's like, everything gets accentuated, the good Mm -hmm. and the bad, right? So I'm really mindful of that one. I think two, there's also culturally in finance, traditionally, there has been a very like top down hierarchical emphasis that Mm -hmm. is changing, but culture gets dictated from people who are very senior. And when senior leadership is, again, still overwhelmingly male and white, there are certain expectations, certain norms Mm -hmm. that just do not apply to people like me. I do think it's changing. And I think that's great. I think the lower classes are, the starting classes are getting more diversified. But I just, I wonder what that means, what it means when we have literally like zero black Fortune 500 CEOs now, right? The only black head of uh, a bank recently had to step down. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, this year has just been a time for people to awaken and really hold up a mirror and think about culturally what are we saying to people? What are we expecting from people? And are we actually cultivating diverse talent? And I think those are some hard questions to sit with and wrestle with if you look at the data and if you look at representation at any level. Mm -hmm. And so from what I'm hearing, it's the culture that is hard to face and the real blocker. And it's not necessarily the nature of the work per se. 
So it's, it's largely the precedent set in the culture before you rather than the type of the industry you're in. So it could be tech versus mm-hmm. finance, but tech already in Silicon Valley is showing signs of having more women and more diversity and leadership as well as encouraging a more open work environment. Mm-hmm. And like, do you see that happening in finance at all? Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I'm hopeful. But again, I think in tech, it's different. A lot of founders Mm -hmm. are very young. A lot of founders have not worked their way up for 30 years in the same organization. It's just a Mm -hmm. completely different ballgame. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that Mm -hmm. some of these reforms will lead to tangible change. And what types of reforms? Yeah, so um, I really commend Citigroup. I think Citigroup is doing a great job. They are currently the only bank that releases uh, wage gap information based on race and gender. And for me, you know, I think in order to address a problem, you need to know what the problem is. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So if you're not releasing that information, it's really hard for the public to know to know what's going on. I heard this phrase recently and it's like culture eats strategy for lunch. So it's (sighs) like, if you have the strategy there, great. But like culturally, how are you changing organizations where people inclusive of their differences, not in spite of inclusive of their differences feel seen and heard and valued. And I think that that's a question that finance is still wrestling with. I've not heard that phrase, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So I would love to know a little bit about why you decided to go to graduate school, because you're in these two incredible programs. Most people Mm -hmm. would only pick one. Mm -hmm. Why did you pick two and why are you there at all? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I so I studied econ and international relations in undergrad. So I've always loved the the mix of the policy and government side, and then also more of like the the business, like finance side of things. But for me, after graduating, it just it became clear that a lot of my mentors who I admired had gone off to get MBAs. It became clear to me that I don't want to spend my entire career in the private sector, which I think is totally fine, right? So for me, it's like if I ever want to go to the public sector, if I ever want to go to the nonprofit sector, I'm just going to be this random kid who shows up with, you know, a ton of private sector experience. And they're going to be like, why are you here? Like, are you serious? Mm -hmm. So for me, the MPP was not only a way to signal my interest in public policy, but a way to acquire the the foundational skills that a public policy maker needs, right? Mm -hmm. And then the MBA has been really helpful in terms of reflecting on my work experience from before business school and learning how to be a better leader, how to be a better operator. Mm-hmm. So that combination has been has been super powerful. I kind of liken it to like I want to be a really a really strong 
manager leader one day. And in order to Mm -hmm. do that, the MBA has kind of given me the trade school side of things where I'm learning marketing and I'm learning finance and I'm taking an ops class, right? Like how do you run an organization well on a day-to-day basis? But then if I'm going to pivot outside of the private sector, the MPP has really allowed me to explore the big questions around public policy, right? What do we do about climate change? What do we do about universal health care? What do we do about women's rights? So it's just been such a good way to feed both the mind and the heart in a way that's been really complementary and address my interests at the nexus of policy and business. And so you picked what most interests you, the realm of public sector, and then you found a way, business school, um, and MPP school, <laughs> so you, you, you found a way to both signal mm-hmm. and gain credibility in that space as well as the skill set. Exactly. 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 That's it. Very admirable. <laughs> <laughs> You've also been described as an amazing mentor to other women. And your friend had told me that your capacity to show up for people is extraordinary. And so you clearly must be finding a way to balance your extremely ambitious work and education as well as your personal life. And Mm -hmm. I want to know why do you do it and how do you do it? (laughs) Yeah, I think why, why do I do it? It's I, again, I have so many great mentors and people who are later in life and it's like, they never regret staying in the office longer, later, working more, they always regret not investing enough time in those personal relationships that are really important. Mm. So I really try to be mindful of that and ensure that I'm spending quality time with the people I love. And how I do it, um, this is so funny, being like type A, I, it's been hard. I think, honestly, I just, I've just had to learn how to say no more. And then also, I had this amazing mentor um, in college, and he said something to me that has literally stuck with me for the last decade. He looked at me once and said, Carla, you know, some things don't need to get done well. Some things just need to get done. So Mm. it's funny, like in graduate school, because I was such a strong academic performer in college, but I realized I was like, if I pour everything I have into my studies, into perfecting every last problem set, into doing every last reading, I'm never going to sleep. I'm never going (laughs) to see people I love. I'm never going to eat. So it's about identifying things that just need to get done or like being comfortable with saying, you know what, I'm, I'm skipping the reflection paper this week because there's 16 of them and I'll pick it up next week and it'll be fine. Um, you know, my, it doesn't matter what grades I get. I'm still going to have a diploma from Harvard and a diploma from UChicago and it's fine. Mm -hmm. So I think learning how to prioritize and like being pretty ruthless about what matters and what doesn't Mm -hmm. has been key to that success instead of trying to perfect everything and doing every last thing perfectly right. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And yes, you've been described as someone who really knows how to get things done 
and everyone who knows you in, in any capacity uh, knows this about you. So I admire that. And I think it's, I also think it's really important to prioritize as a yeah. perfectionist myself. Uh, um, like stagnation is my ultimate enemy mm-hmm. or indecision is my ultimate enemy. If it's not perfect, it doesn't get done. And so mm-hmm. I, I know that ruthlessly prioritizing is something I am working on as well. All of us, all of us. <laughs> so i'd love to hear about a memorable moment where you felt invincible at work or in your school and what empowered you yeah that's a great that's a great question so during my first two years of work when i was at ibm i was leading this like this product launch it was like a big technology product launch and i'd recently been given the opportunity to lead my first team this was very early on in my career and i just remember i had the most amazing mentors i was putting in the hard work we were you know running up against setbacks but i just felt so supported and it was so exhilarating to just be able to execute and have that support and mentorship. And for me, that really stands out as such an incredible, incredible moment for me to flex on those muscles. So you had the people around you who could boost you up. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was just motivated to getting it done. And what is your life motto? Um, take pride of where you come from and be proud of where you'll go. I think that's it. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) That is such a great one. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. It's, um, it's take pride of where you come from, but have faith in how far you'll go. (laughs) Mm. They're both great versions. <laughs> <laughs> and in one word or phrase, what are your heels? Oh, my heels, which is so funny. You, you like working in SF. I'm like, I don't wear heels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> no, I know my, you know, my figurative heels. Um, my, I think my heels are the people around me who just keep me grounded. It's like, you have good days and bad days at work and you have highs and lows. And I think the amazing support network that I have around me just helps to remind me that like, it's going to be fine. Like I'm doing great, you know, um, but it's going to be okay. And they keep me, they keep me focused on what really matters in this life. Mm -hmm which to me is, you know, being good and kind and useful to other people. So my heels are, are my people. (laughs) And in order to have those people around you, you also had to invest in those relationships and be open to help. I know personally, I sometimes shy away from asking for help, but you've been able to curate this amazing support network from being open and from investing time into these people. Oh, totally. I mean, I I love really prioritizing my close friends and family. But Natalie, let me tell you, these these people will will let me know. 
things I don't want to hear. Really? I, have, uh, I have to be open to feedback. I don't have to ask for it. It comes in various sizes. It is solicited sometimes. Other times it's not. Um, <laughs> but that's great that people can be honest to you. Not oh, totally. everyone has that. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with me today, Carla. And thank you for having me. This has been so fun. And yeah, you know, I hope that this conversation is helpful to folks in their respective journeys. That was Carla Magaña Figueroa. My favorite part of this conversation was that Carla didn't shy away from tough subjects. She's direct and tells it how it is. I admire that about her. Anyway, here's a breakdown of my top three takeaways. Pride in her background, focus on growing relationships, and paying it forward. I'm not going to dive into the views she has on progress in the finance world or on race politics today, but I encourage you, if you're interested, to do some research on your own. I also added a few links in the show notes for this episode on statementmondays.com that you can take a look at if you're interested. So, Carla. She just blows me away with the dedication to her family and to who she is under the double graduate degree identity. Despite not having many privileges growing up, it sounds like she had a lot of love and a lot of encouragement, which still motivates her to this day. To me, her interview is a little reminder to acknowledge and cherish the things that keep you going. So something I wish I'd taken more to heart in college is prioritizing the relationships. If you told me a few years ago that I had the option to skip an assignment, I would have thought you were crazy. For one, I'm a perfectionist like Carla. And two, it's just drilled into me that you have to do your homework at all costs. That's just a fact of life to me, at least growing up. But it's also important to take a second to think about what your priorities really are and question the assumptions you've been living on. As Carla says, ruthlessly prioritize. I think of my four years in college, I only intentionally skipped... I'm pretty sure half an assignment. Um, I think, I don't know, maybe it would have taken me another 10 hours to finish it. That was senior year, and I recognized that using that time to make memories with friends would have a bigger lasting effect on me at that point than the small hit my grades would take. Am I still a higher performer? Yes. That's not to say that something like skipping assignments or doing them halfway should become a routine necessarily, at least if you're trying to graduate college. But just check in on your priorities every so often. What does graduating top of your class mean to you? Or how about joining or starting or leading a club? Or making a tight web of friends for life? Or a loose web of tons of friends? Or working part-time jobs? All examples of different priorities you could have in college, if you're still in that position, of course. Anyway, for people who like school and who do well in school, it's terrifying to challenge the habit of putting schoolwork first. But from Carla's words and my limited experience, it can be worth it. Just make sure you're intentional about it. Okay, now for paying it forward. This one's my favorite theme. I try to live with the mindset of, if I can help someone in any way, I'll do it. Having a positive impact on someone else's life is, uh, I, honestly, in my opinion, it's one of the best ways to change the world. It can be such a small gift on our part that makes a huge difference to that person. In Carla's case, it was a mentor who, in her words, had nothing to gain from giving her time, energy, and resources. See if you can think of some person or some small act that changed your life in a meaningful way. Someone that comes to mind for me is Elizabeth Wheel, 
a truly badass angel investor and ultramarathon runner, and I would meet up with her for a run every once in a while. She would be going on that run anyway, and the only difference to her is now she had a buddy. But it meant the world to me, and I gained a confidant and an advocate, and we actually gave each other advice on things going on in our work and our lives. So the cool part there was also that it wasn't one-sided. And she gave me confidence to start this podcast. In fact, Statement Mondays is a way that I'm paying it forward to other women early in their careers. The other reason I bring up Elizabeth is that I interview her in next week's episode. So please tune in again next Monday to hear about Elizabeth Wheel's identity and her heels. All right, fam. As you know, this show is just starting off, so I can use all the help I can get. And the way you can make a difference is just by following or subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. And remember, be bold. Today is Statement Monday. I'm Natalie Munster, and my two interns are Mallory Pilon and Lauren Barbalescu. You can learn more about me and Statement Mondays at statementmondays.com or follow us on Instagram at statementmondays. I truly would love to hear what you think and also how you've been bold lately. So please get in touch. I'll see you next Monday. Bye.